Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You are listening to Rainbow Soul. BlakeRadio.com. Hi, this is Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. For some reason today, we do not have intro or outro music, but we are broadcasting, and that's a good thing. So today is Tuesday, September 29th, 2015, and today's topic is, Is Modern Medicine Attacking Your Heart? This, I'm telling you, you cannot make this stuff up. So the question is, what is killing those at high risk of heart disease? Big hint, it is not heart disease. Yes, I am going to examine the latest breakthrough. I mean, breaking news. This has been delivered to the inbox of every doctor in the United States. And for those of you who watch the news, you might even have heard uh, about this uh, new research. So I'm going to dig deep into this research, what it really means, and as always, think happens. Our call-in number, by the way, is 914-338-0695. I usually try and take questions uh, 50 minutes into the show, 10 minutes before the hour. And as always, uh, check out our sponsor and visit Vitality Capsule. Dot com and check out Vitality Capsules and of course get your free report at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash remedies and learn about natural remedies that made antibiotics obsolete in my medical practice 20 years ago. All right, back to our regular programming. Okay, so here is the headline. Headlines are important because, well, they grab attention. And this certainly grabbed my attention. And the headline is, Sprint Hypertension Trial Preliminary Results Discussed. And this is a trial that went on for uh, many years. And they found there was a 30% reduction in coronary artery or heart-related deaths and a 25% reduction in death overall, which is, well, pretty impressive. And so uh, what happened here is that the trial was stopped because the benefits of lowering the blood pressure to 120 was deemed to be overwhelmingly beneficial. And so that's why the trial was stopped 
And of course, they have awesome results to present, which is just what I told you. But this reduced death. I thought, oh my God, this is great. And it sounded really good until, as always, until you uh, read this. So, what happened? First of all, they uh, excluded a lot of people from this trial. So they used chlorothaladone as a water pill, not hydrochlorothiazide. Um, then what they did was they excluded people who were on a lot of drugs. And so if they were on one or no drugs, they could have a systolic blood pressure as high as, say, 180, but if they had more than two drugs on board, they were progressively more restrictive in the upper ranges of the systolic blood pressure. Interesting. So they also excluded the most resistant patients, and uh, because, of course, it would be too difficult to get them down below 120 to reach the target. And what else did they do? Well, they uh, had a limit of 28% of participants having chronic kidney disease with estimated kidney function between 20 and 59. And they also excluded diabetics. Interesting. So if you're a diabetic, they did not permit you to be in this blood pressure study, even though, you know, diabetics have a very high incidence of heart disease. And what else did they do? So the next thing they did was they uh, excluded different drugs. So, oh, they measured the blood pressure differently from the way doctors measured blood pressure. So they did not have a human measure the blood pressure they used an automated machine, which automatically waited five minutes and then took three blood pressures and averaged them. Just by the way, this alone could be expected to lower blood pressure by more or less 20 points. Because um, often people come to the office, their blood pressure is measured within five minutes, measured by a human being, and the patient, of course, is nervous, and so you get a high reading. Even the recheck blood pressure is often taken within the first five minutes. Okay, so we have a lot of different things done in this study um, to create quite a bit of study uh, design bias. And so the other thing that they did was they limited the drugs used in the trial. So let's take a look at this. So they had a lot of drugs available and they were purchased by NIH and two drugs were donated by pharmaceutical companies and otherwise it was uh, funded that way. Now, the other issue is they excluded, they had people the average age was 62 years of age. 
And so we don't really have an age range to see how applicable this was to people who are younger. Say people with diabetes, not included. People who had a stroke in the past, not included. And uh, again, 25% reduction in overall mortality. Now, what was also um, excluded was certain drugs. So let's get to this, that part of it. Okay. And they did, uh, they, they looked at 9,361 participants and they were randomized to goal of 140 millimeters of mercury systolic blood pressure and 120 millimeters of systolic blood pressure. That was their, their goal. And they also had to be above age 50. This is interesting because a lot of people who are borderline hypertensive or even hypertensive, uh, treatment is started in under 50. So you had to be over 50 and you had to be randomly um, allocated. And so here they talk about what the doctors were allowed to use. So I only used either ACE inhibitors or calcium channel blockers. So thiazide type diuretics, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, or calcium blockers. Those are the four classes of drugs that could be used in the experimental group. Now, the other group, which is the control group, those doctors were allowed to use any and all drugs, beta blockers, alpha blockers, aldosterone inhibitors like spironolactone, ameliorite, so the whole um, ball of wax. And so this was the difference between the two groups. So one group was limited to four different uh, classes of blood pressure drugs, and then the other experimental or the control group, they just tell the doctors, hey, you know, just do what you usually do, whatever that might be. Okay, at the end of, I believe it was 10 years, it's supposed to be 10 years, but they had to stop because the results were so drastic. So let's take a look at what the results really mean. In order to understand that, <coughs> we have to define ACS. What's ACS? Well, ACS is acute coronary syndrome. Now, that's a new term. I had to go look that up, see what that was. Well, acute coronary syndrome is just a new name for coronary artery disease and people who are at risk for um, heart attack. I said, wait a minute. If this is acute coronary syndrome, ACS, how is this diagnosed? And so for this, we go to the American Family Physician uh, Journal. And this is uh, June 1st, 2005. 
So this is a pretty uh, you know, standard definition. And it's saying the term acute coronary syndrome encompasses a range of, I'm going to put this in English, blood clots in the coronary artery type disease, including unstable angina, that means recurrent unpredictable chest pain, ST segment elevation, and non-ST segment elevation heart attack. And the diagnosis requires uh, an EKG, that would be a test, for signs and symptoms, and um, then there are other diagnostic things. The point is this. Let's look at the recommendations for diagnosing coronary artery disease. Now, a recommendation has something called evidence. Evidence to support the recommendation for using a particular criteria for diagnosis. What you need to know is an A-level criteria is consistent, good quality, patient-oriented evidence. This is cool. This already made me feel good. Yes, that's what I want as a doctor. And I'm sure you as a patient, you want consistent, good quality, patient-oriented evidence. Or there's B-level evidence, which is inconsistent. And sometimes yes, sometimes no. Limited quality, patient-oriented evidence. This would be um, something akin to uh, a few testimonials. All right. And then C, which is the worst, lowest quality evidence, which is consensus. That means a bunch of folks get together in a room, have a few drinks, and say, you know what? We think this is true. We think we're going to do this. Um, and there's very little evidence, lots of opinion, and maybe some case studies. So this is the weakest of evidence. Um, to put this in, like, everyday language, will say it's a rumor, no evidence of benefit. So A, consistent, good quality, patient-oriented evidence. And once we looked at the patients, we applied the criteria, and we saw that these criteria did indeed predict, in this case, acute coronary syndrome that really does exist. All right, so you got this? A, B, C, we're looking for A's. All right. So uh, the likelihood, of, this is a recommendation, likelihood of coronary syndrome should be determined in all patients who present with chest pain. And this is a, and you determine this likelihood, it's a rating scale, low, medium, high. Um, they looked at nine references in the literature and they found that the evidence that determining the likelihood of coronary syndrome was helpful was to see. In other words, the rating criteria were um, pretty much useless. Then the next thing is a 12-lead EKG to be obtained within 10 minutes of presentation in patients with ongoing chest pain. We just want to check into that noise. Hold on. silenced the interruption. All right. So we're looking at the strengths of recommendations. And these are the recommendations upon which 
the diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome is based. Okay, so a 12-lead EKG obtained within 10 minutes of presentation in patients with ongoing chest pain. That has a level C. In other words, pretty unreliable. All right, next, cardiac markers. These are um, blood tests measured in a patient has chest pain consistent with acute coronary syndrome. The predictive value of this recommendation, again, a C. Rumor only, no evidence of consistency or value. Finally, a normal EKG does not rule out coronary syndrome. This is B. That means this is medium value. In other words, this is actually a negative. So we're saying if the EKG is normal, it's useless. And if they find that that's somewhat true. Okay, next. When used by trained physicians, the acute cardiac time-insensitive predictive instrument, that means a computerized decision-making program built into the EKG machine, results in a reduction in hospital admissions of patients who do not have coronary syndrome. So if you use a computer interpretation of the EKG, it seems to reduce your false positives. Now if you use the same 12-week EKG, and they can say if it was interpreted by a person or a machine computer, it doesn't seem to lead to more true positives. Now, this may seem confusing. So how can you reduce false positives without increasing true positives? The answer, of course, is the number of true positives is so small, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. So you can increase uh, the amount of hay you identify accurately without really increasing the amount of needles that you find. All right. Bottom line here. The criteria for diagnosing acute coronary syndrome are unreliable. So we have a condition for which we lack reliable diagnostic criteria, recommendations. And this is, uh, this is disappointing, let's just say. All right, so we have a medical condition for which our ability to diagnose it is, well, not great. I always have people in the chat room who like to take a look at these things. So we're going to post this reference in the chat room. That's if we can find the chat room. Hmm. Well, so... Oh, we found the chat room. So the criteria then for diagnosing the condition on which this diagnosis is based is, let's just say, unreliable. All right. So the next thing that you take a look at then is 
what are we talking about? We're talking about heart disease, because it's been renamed, but it now, in uh, 2014, claimed the lives of 610,000 United States residents a year, which, by the way, is down from 870,000 three years ago. Now, this is uh, important. The important thing is that there's 610,000 Americans a year dying of heart disease, and it appears we have no way of diagnosing uh, whether or not a person is actually in the throes of acute coronary syndrome or their heart's being damaged. You would think that an area of illness responsible for 610,000 deaths a year, one could actually get uh, patient-oriented information. All right, so what are they telling your doctor? Well, they're telling your doctor, this is uh, Medscape Family Medicine, and these are prevention guidelines for acute coronary syndrome. And they say it's sponsored by AstraZeneca. So far, you know, nothing unusual. But get this. Look at disclaimer. What does it say? It says the educational activity presented above may involve simulated case-based scenarios. That means we made it up. The patients depicted in these scenarios are fictitious. It's like fiction, not true. And no association with any actual patient is intended or should be inferred. So in other words, if you're reading this, they're giving you patient case studies that are fictitious, that means fake, and you shouldn't attempt to correlate this with what's happening with your patient. All right. So the material presented here does not necessarily reflect the views of Medscape, okay, or companies that support educational programming on Medscape. These materials may discuss therapeutic products that have not been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and off-label uses of approved products. Off-label uses means uses for which the product has not been approved. So either the product is not approved or the uses are not approved. A qualified healthcare professional should be consulted before using any therapeutic product discussed. Readers, this includes healthcare professionals, should verify all information and data before treating patients or employing any therapy described in this educational activity. So it says we're lying and you should verify any of this information before you use it. How's that for an educational activity? And then, guess what they say? For the questionnaire that you complete, the doctor, before he engages in this educational activity. He says, how confident are you in your understanding of cardiovascular disease? Okay, so far, you know, nothing really out of the ordinary. But the question that really gets me is how confident are you in your ability to adopt evidence-based care for secondary prevention of acute coronary syndrome? Or how confident are you in your ability to believe what we are about to tell you and we've already told you is not true? That's way cool. And so this is really incredible. This is 
another piece of uh, conditioning that your doctor is going through. And so if he's keeping up with the latest and reading his educational update information from, of course, a major drug company, that's already told him what we're about to tell you is fictitious, then what does that mean for your uh, medical therapy? Yep. Time to worry if you're so inclined. Okay. And so here, those in the chat room, is the Doctor Continuing Medical Education, also known as CME. Yes, there it is. Now, okay, so we have a condition, can't be diagnosed. Doctors are giving uh, continuing medical education based on fictitious information. And again, 610,000 U.S. residents each year die from this condition. You'd think they could find an actual real case study to use, but they choose not to. Now, the next thing to take a look at is, well, what does the government say about this? Yeah, I, I like that. What what does the government say uh, about this? That's always uh, important to know. Well, the best thing we have here that we can pin down is and this is good to verify this stuff, is how deadly is a heart attack anyway? And so what they did here is they looked at deaths following acute coronary syndrome four years. So four years down the road, what did the death rate look like? So the thing is, at a maximum of uh, 45 months, there was 77.8% death, which means there was 20, uh, 22% alive. So you look at four years, 22% alive, you're looking at more or less a 4 or 5% uh, death rate per year after a heart attack. So this is... Um, consistent with U.S. data that having a heart attack confers about a 4% death rate. So if you have a heart attack, more or less, you have a 4% chance of dying. So that's important to to get a grip on. And this is going to add up pretty soon here. Okay. So We have to take a look also, I like taking a look at uh, what uh, what Bear says. So what Bear says, okay, heart disease facts. Now, it's important to know what Bayer says because Bayer, of course, sells well, aspirin, a drug that's, um, according to the standard of care, to be used in all heart attacks or 
suspected heart attack. So that's uh, that's important. And so there, basically. Um, feels that use of antiplatelet therapy in preventing acute coronary syndrome. And they are saying that using this has reduced the rate of myocardial infarction. However, there's also a rationale for combining more drugs in a secondary prevention. And so what they're saying is our drug is helpful, but uh, use more drugs. Okay. So let's dig down into this study, the study that was, uh, that was stopped. And the study was stopped because there's so many overwhelmingly positive results but they refused to release the actual data on how many people died of what. They said, no, 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 we're not releasing any of those details. All we're saying is the drugs were helpful. So let's take a look. Now, one of the criteria of people who are in this study are people who have a 15% risk of heart disease over a 10-year period. And so let's follow this mythical group through the study, and we're going to apply the study's numbers and see what we uh, end up with. All right. So we have this uh, study, and this is a four-year study, uh, a different four-year study. We're going to get back to the one at hand. So at the end of the study, 73% of people were alive. And of those who died, 27% did not die of a heart disease. So this is confusing because it's 27 times 27. So you have 73% were alive, which means 27 died, but 27% who died did not die of heart disease. In other words, 77.8% lived or 22.3% died and did not die of heart disease, and 17% of people with heart disease would be dead except four years after diagnosis from heart disease. But wait, we know that 40% of all deaths, however labeled, are from medical intervention. This means that 10.2% of people with heart disease will die in the following four years after diagnosis from their heart disease. So 10.2, 27. So I have 17% of people will not die from heart disease. Only 10.2% will. So this is uh, four years after their diagnosis. So per year death rate, 2.55%. In other words, 97.45% of those diagnosed with heart disease will be alive at the end of any given year. Put another way, using a linear death rate, it will take 39 years for all of them to be dead from heart disease. This is not a deadly illness, not a death sentence. 
supposed to be more specific, no more than 2.55% of those treated each year could benefit from treatment, even if the treatment were 100% effective. So here's a shakeout based on the numbers, again, this study and our prior knowledge of the medicine kill rate. So 73% are alive, 6% dead from non-cardiac causes, 12.6% from heart disease, 8.39% from medical killing. This gives you 100%. So 12.6 divided by 4 is at best, again, 3.15% death from heart disease, which means about a 97% annual percent survival. So the percent of those treated did not benefit 97% of those treated did not benefit because they weren't going to die. So the numbers needed to treat once a person's identified as having acute coronary syndrome is 23. So it means, assuming the therapy is 100% effective, it only has the potential to save the lives of 1 in 23 of those treated because the 22 are going to live anyway. This actually matches with what I observe as a practicing physician. All these patients diagnosed with high risk, high risk, high risk, and they all did perfectly fine. It was, you know, a long time, nobody died. So my patients who went to the cardiologist did not get the relief of their symptoms or increase their quality of life. And that was the, the biggest um, difference. Now, the so back to the um, so that's a study of survival done by the government uh, in the UK. So that's the analysis of that. But the problem here is we have a study. This is what the doctors are being told based on fictitious information. And they start off the, the exercise by asking the doctor, well, how confident are you in applying and believing what we're about to teach you? Of course, everyone's like, well, I have confidence, of course. And so in sales parlance, this is kind of like a trial close. And the reader's being asked, are you gullible? Do you plan to believe whatever you read? And just by asking the question and phrasing it in that manner, it actually um, increase the person's commitment to believe what they're about to read, even though you've told them that, well, you made it up. So this is the, uh, again, the research to support lowering the blood pressure below 120 systolic. So who was excluded? People with high blood pressure, higher than 180, people on more than three drugs, people who had chronic kidney failure with a filtration rate less than 20, and people with diabetes. And again, the blood pressure was measured while the staff was out of the room using uh, a machine. And this, again, eliminated the treatment of inflated numbers. In other words, their 120 might really be a regular 140 in a regular doctor's office, who's taking the blood pressure in the conventional way, which is having a human take it. And so 
people had to be over 50, whereas we realize that many people being treated for hypertension are actually under 50. And so, again, the danger of this study is this information can be taken and transferred to people who are not in this study and might not reflect what's going on. And so, people who had the Framingham Risk Assessment for Heart Disease, more than 15% over 10 years was included in this. And an event is 4% fatal. So in other words, a person has to have calculated risk of dying of heart disease in 10 years that is 0.004. That means four people per thousand are going to die in 10 years of this heart disease. That's considered high risk. And so if we know that eight people per thousand die of something or other every year, that means 80 people per thousand are going to die over 10 years. But of that, only four are going to die of heart disease. And this is a high-risk group that's studied. And so literally, this study to produce a 25% or 30% reduction in heart disease death merely needs to prevent one cardiac death over a period of 10 years. And so the risk of dying over 10 years from a cardiac event in a person who is high-risk heart problems is only four, then a total elimination of the cardiac risk cannot possibly account for a 25% reduction in death. So 25% reduction in death would be 20 people not dying over that 10-year period. So you have 1,000 people. We expect 80 to die because that's the basic death rate in the United States. And so if that 80 becomes 60, that's a 25% reduction. But wait, only four were going to die of heart disease, and we only reduce the heart disease by 25 or 30%, which is one death. So death over a 10-year period cumulatively went from 80 to 79. That's just based on cardiac death. But the study says there was a 25% reduction in the experimental group. And what was this reduction from? If you ask me, this reduction was from their limitation of the cardiac drugs that were used in the experimental group. The more deadly drugs, such as hydrochlorothiazide and beta blockers, for example, were not used in the experimental group. And so they were not exposed to the drug risk as much as the so-called control group were, where doctors were allowed to use whatever drugs they felt like using. Now, so then if we take the death rate of point, of, I'm sorry, 80 per 10-year period, we know that death by medicine is 40%, then that would be 32 deaths you would expect 
just from doctor intervention alone. So 32 of those deaths are due to doctor intervention. And so what happened, I believe, is in the experimental group where the number of drugs used was limited, the death by medicine shrank. Shrank by 20, leaving, say, death rate of 10 people dying in the death by medicine category. And that is the true message of this study. Not that lowering the blood pressure to 120, they say, is wise, but that limiting the drugs doctors use can and does save lives. And this is an awesome demonstration of that. And the other piece of logic that explains this is if these are heart drugs and all they have the, the power to do is eliminate heart disease, then how can they account for only elimination of one of the deaths in four, which is the heart disease death, 25 to 30% reduction, yet you have a reduction of the non-cardiac deaths. These non-cardiac deaths are reduced by 20. So what do we have? We have a reduction in the doctor-caused death. But how has the study been interpreted? The study has been interpreted that blood pressure drugs are helpful at preventing non-cardiac death, and so we should start using these drugs on wider populations who don't have hypertension or heart disease, since they seem to be preventing drugs in other categories. Okay, what they have failed to take a look at is a control group. That would be people who are taking no drugs. Or if they had both populations limited to the same set of drugs they could use, but one had a 140 goal and one had a 120 goal. So this is an example of a controlled clinical trial where the control group not exactly placebo. And this is the structural issue that affects most research and leads to health policies that are even more deadly than, um, than you can even imagine. So what's the answer? <laughs> the answer is a drug-free life. A drug-free life. So let me check out the chat room here, see if we have questions. And also, don't enter a study because you don't know which part you're going to be in. It could kill you. All right, where are we? Okay. <laughs> okay, so uh, someone says, being my own doctor, would it be reasonable to say as long as I'm upright, breathing, and my heart is beating, my body knows exactly how to manage my blood pressure? Well, it's reasonable to say that your body knows better than a certified doctor how to manage your blood pressure. But let's just say your blood pressure is high. It might indicate a need for a change in diet or lifestyle, which, again, you can handle yourself. Okay. 
What is considered too low with blood pressure? Can low blood pressure be as bad as high? Yes. In fact, low blood pressure is even worse than high because it's a low blood pressure that causes you to pass out and causes you to actually die. Um, low blood pressure is too low means that blood is not circulating around your body. And because it's not circulating uh, around your body, the organs don't get blood and they um, they fail. They fail to work because they need blood. Those of you who are listening in by telephone, I'm sorry I can't see your phone numbers or your um, or your questions. Can you see? Click a few buttons there, see if they can they come on. Oh, no chance. Okay, so let's answer more questions from the chat room. Okay, so the question is, what's too low blood pressure? Well, any blood pressure that makes you dizzy. But usually, um, for an adult, a top number below 90 for sure. There's problems over there. And definitely just try drinking more water and some salt. That's the first uh, thing. Or eating more food. I remember when I was a medical student and I was, uh, I guess you could say, impoverished. But I figured my budget out where I could afford to eat every other day. But I didn't have enough money to eat every day. Okay. So as you might imagine, my blood pressure got pretty low. So if someone has low blood pressure, the first thing is eat more. See if that brings it up. And, of course, drink more water, too. All right. What good is a blood pressure cuff when they keep lowering blood pressure standards? That's a good question. They want everyone on high blood pressure medicines which kill your heart. Absolutely. So, questions. What goes the blood pressure cuff? It's a tool to bring you into the medical industrial complex and to get you on drugs. That is the use of the blood pressure cuff. Do blood pressure medicines cause things like Alzheimer's or dementia later on? Absolutely. Yes, they do. Why? Because the reason the blood pressure is high is because there's not enough blood going to the brain and or the kidneys. And so, obviously, if you lower the blood pressure, this is at a time when there's not enough blood going to the heart and brain anyway, then it starves the brain of oxygen and nutrients, causing uh, forgetfulness and old timers or Alzheimer's disease. So absolutely. <laughs> okay, Dr. Daniels, I gave away my blood pressure machine last year because I feel I do not need to know what my blood pressure is. Uh, I don't exactly agree with that. I will say this, as long as you're feeling well and having no problems, then chances are uh you don't need to take your blood pressure. But if you are feeling not well, then it's a good idea to take your blood pressure because if it's a high, then that's your sign to, again, change your diet, drink more fluids, have more bowel movements, and that'll bring the blood pressure right down early on. So usually most people feel not quite right, can't put the finger on it, somewhere around 150. And so if you check your blood pressure, it's somewhere around 150 or something, that's an easy thing you can handle by 
um, switching to organic food, getting rid of your processed organic foods, increasing your bowel movement with something like uh, Vitality Capsule, decreasing your parasite load with something like turpentine. So it's a very simple fix. So I would say it's worth uh, checking your blood pressure from time to time. Okay. Dr. Daniel, I have a friend in her 50s who was taking sleep medication and stopped and is now being provi- prescribed Pasoclaire. She's having a horrible case of insomnia and has been up for three days straight and is a school teacher. Hmm. So, is there anything natural that could possibly help with insomnia? Insomnia is a bit dicey. It's dicey because it can be caused by so many um, things. And when you medicate it with um, drugs to help you go to sleep, or in this case, even um, herbs like uh, this uh, pasco flare is a dry extract of passiflora or passion flower equivalent. Again, you're covering up the problem. The real problem is a person's system is filled with uh, chemicals and parasites that are irritating and stimulating the brain and keeping the person from sleeping. So the immediate thing for her to do would be go 100% organic, 100%. I have found people with years of insomnia, once they go 100% organic in as little as a week, they're sleeping. So she needs to go a little deeper. So just taking a natural um, sleep-inducing herb, whether it's you know chamomile, lavender, passion flower, Again, all you're doing is applying a natural solution with the same attitude of the medical industrial complex, which is not treating the underlying um, illness. So first thing is to go organic. Second thing is nutrition. Definitely can't uh, say enough about B-complex 50. That's going to help the liver uh, get some nutrition, kick into action, and give her some relief. Those are some things that she can start um, doing. I would not expect the um, Pasco flare to really give her much relief because her problem is a toxicity problem. What is the proper way to check your blood pressure at home with a blood pressure kit? Let's just say for the sake of discussion that you're not assisted. You're doing this all by yourself. Um, first of all, what kind of machine should you have? You should have a machine that measures the blood pressure in the upper arm. But what I tell people to do is just stop by your local pharmacy, stick your hand in the machine, and if your weight is anywhere under um, 200 pounds, or under 220, you should get a pretty accurate reading. And so what I would do is stop by the pharmacy and stick your hand in there. And if you get a high reading, do natural interventions I mentioned, and then go back and recheck it. Um, For a person who is living a natural drug-free life, 
I don't think it really makes much sense to have a blood pressure machine um, at home because you might need it once every three years or something. You just, you're not going to get much use out of it. <laughs> what would you advise people who are filled with hate about the medical establishment in this country? I think it's really important not to get caught up in hatred because it saps your energy, depletes your B vitamins and minerals, and actually makes you sick. So what do you do? You should regard the medical establishment the same way you would regard a very high cliff, something you're not going to jump off of or go near. And if you look at it, this is a natural hazard that happens to exist, and you're just going to step around it, then you eliminate the emotional toxicity, and at the same time, you have the opportunity to uh, save your life. (laughs) Okay, my friend declined a heart transplant and died from a massive heart attack earlier this year. What is your opinion about that? Okay. First of all, when a lot of people are being offered heart transplants that really don't need them. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Um, My brother-in-law walks, talks, goes to work every day, and uh, high blood pressure. So the doctor put him on a bunch of high blood pressure medicines, then put him on some diabetes medicines, and then said, hey, Bob, what do you say? Put you on a transplant list. There's no way a guy that walks, talks, and goes to work every day needs a transplant. He's too functional. So to his uh, credit, he said, nah, Doc, I don't think I want to be on that list. Doc says, oh, okay. So uh, he made a few lifestyle changes, took some vitamins, and things are much better. He's feeling fine. So you have to do more than just decline the transplant. You have to change the way you eat and make some other changes. So so that would be the moral to that story. The other presumption is the transplant would have saved them. Uh, That's not clear either. There are people who died during transplant surgery. Okay. (laughs) Let's see what else. All right, one time. Okay, try to sift through the questions here online. My aunt had tests run, and it shows there has been heart damage. Okay. The average American who's 60 years old, if you run tests, it will show heart damage. She's very anemic, and her mom and brother passed away from heart condition. All right. So probably it would be worthwhile addressing her anemia by eating high-iron foods like beets and prunes. What can she do to get her heart healthy? The answer is it's not really clear that her heart is unhealthy. 
So that's the thing to uh, to be aware of. All right, office hours not this Thursday, but next Thursday. People can go to vitalitycapsules dot com forward slash office hours, or you can just go to vitalitycapsules dot com. Quick office hours, and that's our monthly subscription service where people can get their questions answered. Okay, that is the end of tonight's show, but we have our blank studio here, so I can't play our outgo music. So we'll see you again next week. Until then, think happens.